On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news, including the final 2024 CMS payment rule for ASCs and focus on the regulations related to pharmaceutical services, and we interview pharmacist John Karwaski regarding diversion. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 205 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for November 5th, 2023. Recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York, this is Sue Cronkite, co-host of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Operations Manager for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. We'd like to remind our listeners that the ASC regulatory environment is a rapidly evolving landscape and the material presented in this episode is based on the most current information available as of the date of recording. As such, it's important to recognize that this information may be subject to change, and we advise all ASCs to stay up to date with the latest regulations and guidelines issued by their relevant regulatory bodies. Joining me today is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and one of the most respected experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. With over 30 years of experience, Mr. Gailey has authored over 10 books on the ASC industry, and he is a sought-after speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So we're recording on the Sunday after we finished up our uh, Director of Nursing Boot Camp. Um, I thought we would uh, come back down to the studio before we shut it down for a while here, at, uh, replace some of the equipment. We're updating okay. everything, constantly upgrading equipment in here just to make us sound better and be able to accommodate the many conferences we have. we got a lot of them coming up, don't we? We do, and we actually thought... Almost every day of the week this past week, we thought we'd come down after the boot camp, yeah. but we couldn't quite make it back down to record some more after doing the boot camp all day. So yeah, it was we're exhausting. To it now. Plus, yeah. we also it had sur- we had two surveys this last week. Yeah. Uh, one was a surprise, and unfortunately mm-hmm. for Sue and Amy, who are uh, a big part of the boot camp, uh, it was their clients. So mm-hmm. I, you know, it's almost like. Uh, you know uh, Murphy's Law there, like the yeah. uh, the worst possible time for a for one of our clients to have a uh, a survey. But yeah. uh, it was uh, it was an interesting week. We had uh, a lot of fun with our our uh, listeners. We had mm-hmm. uh, some good feedback. Yeah. You know our uh, our uh, boot camps are, are really uh, becoming a, a very important uh, element of our our clients too. So mm-hmm. about two thirds of the people that were on it were uh, were clients of ours. So mm-hmm. there's always a little bit more interaction because they know. Yeah. You know our people so well, um, but it was it was a lot of fun. And uh, the next uh, boot camp coming up will be in January for the uh, uh, administrators Administrator. boot camp. Mm-hmm. 
I think with all of the turnover, it's, you know, it's just such a great thing to be able to put somebody new or even people that have been in either the DON role or the administrator role. Everybody that we have, they always say they learn something. Yeah. The new people, it, it often seems somewhat overwhelming, but, you know, at least they know all the information, they know where to start, and then they can join us on our Saturday sessions. Right. And, you know, catch up a bit more. And they also get the recordings, so they can always... You know, revisit that. Yeah, and our our uh, we we do have an on demand version of of mm-hmm. uh, all three of our boot camps. We have the director of nursing boot camp, the administrators boot camp, and I think it's going to be in uh, March is going to be our next uh, business office managers boot camp. But they're on demand. There are on demand versions if uh, if you really can't wait for one of the live virtual ones. So, uh, and then in November, I'm sorry, we're in November already, but uh, later this month on the 16th and 17th, we mm-hmm. have. Um, on the 16th, we're going to have the uh, um, Finance and Accounting 101 class, uh, Introduction to Finance and Accounting for Ambulatory Surgery Centers 101. That's uh, that's going to be a, uh, a nice opportunity to kind of uh, get the basics of accounting, especially mm-hmm. for uh, like nurses uh, in particular who are in the administrative role. And that's, that's uh, quite frequent, actually. actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if anybody is preparing for the CASC exam, this would be a good way to kind of get that financial section. So that's on November 16th. And then the following day, on November 17th, we'll be uh, redoing our conditions for coverage and interpretive guidelines conference. We did that last, uh, I think it was about the same time, uh, there about the same time in mm-hmm. um, September of, I think it was in September of 2020, 2021. Mm-hmm. I think so. But there's been enough changes uh, and we're going to um, have a lot of fun. Uh, we actually have a very high, uh, we have quite a number of people signed up. We're close to 50 and we haven't even mm-hmm. really gotten into the month for both of those conferences. So we uh, we expect to be well over 100 when we're, we're finally done. So uh, sign up quickly. It's uh, All that information is available at ASC Central or asc-central.com. And you can uh, follow the links to sign up for that. And uh, I am busily working on our credentialing, privileging, and peer review conference, which is going to be in January. Not not ready to announce the date yet, Sue. I do have to follow up on a couple things, but uh, probably within the next 24, 72 hours, we'll be able to announce that uh, conference. So mm-hmm. we're going to be we're going to be kind of busy. We better get used to yep. this uh, <laughs> this studio down here. So uh, while the conference was going on, mm-hmm. CMS uh, released the final twenty twenty four. Uh, payment rules for HOPDs and ASCs. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, interesting. We're going to talk about that uh, in a few minutes, but that uh, was uh, um, uh, a pleasant surprise, uh, though uh, still didn't get everything we wanted, but uh, we definitely uh, made some strides. But with that, why don't we start into some of the news, Sue? Okay. I have some information about cyber attacks. Um, on August 15th, the Joint Commission released a Sentinel event alert addressing the recent increase in cyber attacks. According to the alert, the Department of Health and Human Services data revealed 707 data breaches in 2022, exposing at least 51.9 million patient records. The majority of these incidents involved hacking or another um, IT incident, often in email or on network servers. These attacks have targeted large healthcare systems as well as small independent practices, so it's really hitting everybody. The Joint Commission notes that the constantly changing methods of attack necessitate not only preventative measures, but also being fully prepared after a cyber attack. Additionally, all personnel should be prepared for a cyber emergency, not just the IT staff. The Joint Commission recommends certain actions to 
both prevent cyber incidents and to be prepared in the event of an incident. The center should evaluate the findings of its hazard vulnerability assessment and prioritize any services that are necessary for the center to continue operations. These would include medical records, pharmacy services, and other services necessary for patient care and safety. Um, they recommend forming a downtime planning committee responsible for developing a plan for both preparedness actions and mitigations. This committee should include representatives from IT, leadership, and personnel from admitting, nursing services, and any other departments that would be affected by the loss of electronic systems. Your center should identify downtime resources and develop downtime plans and procedures. Plans and procedures should include when to declare the downtime, shut down electronic systems, and or cancel procedures. Downtime procedures may include access to a fax machine, um, paper and pen resources for charting and discharge paperwork, maintaining a hard copy drug guide to check for known drug interactions, um, and additionally, the center should designate response teams responsible for evaluating the severity of an unanticipated cyber incident and determining what steps need to be taken. All personnel and center leadership should be fully trained on the center's downtime procedures as well as the types of incidents that would result in the need to initiate these downtime procedures. This training should be part of employee orientation and a comprehensive training program should include classroom training, tabletop exercises, workshops, and possibly a full-scale disaster drill. In the event of a cyber attack resulting in downtime procedures, the center should maintain good communication with personnel, patients, and families, including which systems have been affected, the clinical and non-clinical consequences of the attack, and what is being done to address the situation. The center should provide frequent status updates. Finally, after an attack, the center should evaluate their response and make any necessary improvements. This may include restoring electronic systems as you're able to, requiring center-wide password resets, and or replacing factory resetting affected hardware. For more information, please read the issue 67 of the Joint Commission Sentinel Event Alert. And we'll provide a link to that uh, newsletter. Uh, so this is wild. That, that is an incredible number. And, and we mm -hmm. know just from our own clients in the last, uh, I think it was 18 months, we've had three mm -hmm. cyber events, not always affecting the surgery center directly, but uh, indirectly affecting mm -hmm. them. Like if they're part of a practice yeah. and the practice was impacted, you know, the telephone systems, the emails going back yep. and forth. I think we related a story earlier about a hospital that a surgery center was connected with, was not connected with, but uh, mm -hmm. worked with for pre-op and pathology, not being able yeah. to do anything for a long period of time. Yeah, not being able to access those results. And, and that really slows things down. So, so I took a couple things out of that. Uh, as you were reading it, I was like, uh, you know, uh, highlighting a couple things. First of all, I did mention the hazard vulnerability yep. assessment and how important that document is. We spent quite a bit of time during the boot camp last week talking about how to do an HVA, mm -hmm. even though mm -hmm. many directors in nursing might not necessarily be directly involved in that yeah. uh, unless they unless they are the administrator. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we we really didn't spend a lot of time focusing on cybersecurity during that. And mm -hmm. this is a very good point that. That is certainly one of those things that you are um, not on, uh, that that there's a good chance that it you're going to be affected yeah. by it. And it's not something everybody would know. I mean, everybody's done fire drills. Obviously, you have to keep doing those. But, yeah. you know, this is not something people just know common sense of, of how to deal with. So really good to run through it. Well, and it, it struck me also as you were talking that uh, we're talking about a, a forming a downtime planning committee. I mean, this isn't uh, when you think about downtime, uh, there are other things even, uh, you know, beyond 
um, the uh, cybersecurity that mm-hmm. could cause your system to be down. Once you move over to an EMR system, mm-hmm. you know, you, you could be in trouble if your software is down for whatever reason. You know, they, yeah. they could have yeah. a cybersecurity event or there could be a problem with your internet, internet mm-hmm. connection uh, or, you know, again, the, the, uh, the servers for your internet provider, your your uh, EMR provider could could have a problem. Yeah, I remember at the hospital when, you know, once in a blue moon we'd end up having to go back to paper charts. And, I mean, I had started off with paper charts. But, boy, once you're yeah. doing electronic medical records for, you know, even a year or two, it, it's just so foreign to go back to yeah, the Yeah, you don't want to so do it anymore. <laughs> you really have to, have to, you know, have some kind of a process to make sure you've got those forms and that people can be instructed how to use them. So. Well, and another thing that, I mean, certainly one of the best ways to avoid these types of problems, one of the most important elements is making sure you have very strong passwords mm-hmm. and everybody has a password. Those passwords are changed periodically, um, you know, and also, uh, you know, have a, a regular um, cybersecurity assessment done by a reputable uh, IT company, mm-hmm. you know, uh, probably somebody other than your own vendor, uh, just to make sure that you got some independence there. Mm-hmm. So definitely start to... Uh, think about this a little bit more seriously and be prepared for this type of thing and, and put it into your HVA as uh, as mm-hmm. the Joint Commission recommended, uh, have drills also. Yeah. And just some information on wrong site surgeries. Um, per a recent article in Becker's, the Joint Commission noted that wrong site surgeries are most frequently attributed to orthopedic services. It's 35.3% based on analysis of 68 wrong site surgery closed claims from 2013 to 2020. Also important to note is compared to the inpatient setting, the severity of claims was generally lower in the ambulatory care facility. The most common procedure associated with wrong site surgery claims is intervertebral disc surgery, accounting for 22.1%, followed by arthroscopy and muscle tendon surgeries. Nearly half of these claims resulted in the need for additional surgery. Researchers noted that failure to follow policy protocol was a contributing factor in 83.8% of these incidents, followed by failure to review medical records, noted to be a factor in 41.2% of these incidents. For more information, refer to the May edition of the Joint Commission Journal on Quality and Patient Safety. Those are frightening statistics, especially mm-hmm. since, you know, the arthroscopies in particular, it just seems like a, a good timeout would certainly avoid mm-hmm. Uh, that problem. And that's been our experience when we've done investigations after a wrong site surgery. It's mm-hmm. it's very frequently the timeout that, that has been uh, the problem. So, yeah. um, you, know, you know, and, and you know, as a surveyor, I often go into centers and it's very obvious that, you know, that they're doing a, sur- they're doing a timeout right. while I'm there, but they're not doing... They don't look comfortable doing it. They don't it. look comfortable. Like it's very rote. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's very robotic. Um, mm-hmm. So it, you're not, you're doing it for uh, safety purposes. It's mm-hmm. not just something that is there for a regulatory purpose. And I, I think that's mm-hmm. that's an important takeaway. So you as uh, uh, the leadership in the surgery centers really need to make sure that your people, you know, are, are doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, pop in periodically, do an audit. You know, include this in your monthly uh, checklist. Okay. And, of course, empower everybody on that team, you know, from the surgeon to the anesthesiologist to the charge nurse to the techs, you know, the scrub techs and the, the um, you know, any other people that are in the room to stop the procedure to do this mm-hmm. and, and make sure they're, they're not, 
you know, yelled at by the doctors or mm-hmm. the surgical team yeah. uh, when they do that. It is extremely important that you do this. Do, and you can back it up by, you know, with your policies and procedures. Like I said, most it looks like most people have the correct policies and procedures, yeah. but they just they get lazy follow. and aren't following them. So if somebody has a complaint, you know, you can go back and point to your policy and this is what we've decided to do. Right. And we have to follow through with it. And, and it really is a, a sign of really poor quality when, uh, you know, you have to do additional surgery because you did surgery mm-hmm. on the wrong, uh, you know, part of the body. So, yeah, let's uh, let's all dedicate ourselves to trying to do uh, better timeouts and also checking the paperwork better. So, Sue, I also saw that uh, val- validation surveys are about to restart. CMS has notified the uh, accreditation organizations that the new process that we've talked about a couple times uh, is mm-hmm. going to be in place. In the past, you might remember that a validation survey uh, was performed by the state agency, you know, about you know, anywhere up to 30 days usually after the accreditation organization did a deemed status survey. And the, the reason for these surveys is to validate uh, the work of the accreditation organization when they're doing a CMS uh, certification survey. Uh, and, and of course, the uh, on an annual basis, we uh, receive a report. And we talk about it usually on the on the podcast here, as to what uh, what the what CMS found with these validation surveys, how accurate uh, the various accreditation organizations were, and they score those accreditation organizations based upon uh, how many um, uh, you know citations were were missed or, or not accounted for during the uh, mm-hmm. the accreditation organization survey. So the the new process, though, is going to be uh, even more daunting because what's going to happen is the CMS team, who uh, apparently in the future are not going to be the state agencies, but they're going to be outside contractors contracting with CMS. No information about what those, who those contractors would be, but they would contract with CMS to uh, show up at the same time that the accreditation surveyors are there with the same number of people that would be uh, with the accreditation surveyors. So if you have two or three people on the uh, on the accreditation the deemed status accreditation team you're going to have another three people you know two to three people showing up with the uh, accreditation surveyors so make sure you have plenty of space in your surgery center for mm-hmm. for all these people mm-hmm. now unlike the previous process the CMS surveyors are not going to be uh, issuing their own report. They're going to be obser- well they'll issue a report but it won't be to the center. So instead of you having two um, statements of deficiencies, as was in the past, um, this report would go to the uh, to CMS from the uh, uh, the individuals that are doing the validation survey. Or strictly surveying the other surveyors, basically. Correct, right? or observing Nothing. them. Which, mm-hmm. uh, speaking as a surveyor, if uh, if I'm one of those unlucky guys to have it, trust me, it's going to be. Uh, you know, it's going to be a different type of survey. We're going to be, we're there's be no way to avoid very careful to get every little. That, that's right. You're not well, going to want to miss anything, too. And, of course, know. CMS doesn't really like, you know, the fact that we're so consultative. And, and we are, okay. you know, as an accreditation surveyor, we try to be as consultative as possible. And I have a feeling that that part of the, the experience for mm-hmm. surgery centers is going to be very different. Yeah. So. And you just couldn't help but be a little bit tense. I don't, you know, yeah. it's just always awkward. So anyway, that's going to be starting up shortly. I don't have any more information about that. Apparently, the surveyors, in the beginning at least, will know that surveyor that uh, CMS is following them, and then after that, it will be a surprise. So you could have two surprises: uh, you surprised by the surveyor showing up, and the surveyor is surprised by another team showing up uh, to watch over them. And as we indicated earlier, the final 2024 payment rule was issued on November 2nd, 2023. And this is an update to the OPPS and the ASC payment rates, as well as the uh, ASC quality reporting program. 
I'm going to go through uh, what the updates were. Some of this is right off of the, the news release and some is just some observations. So in accordance with Medicare law, CMS is finalizing the OPPS, that's what they call payment rates for hospitals and ASCs that meet applicable quality reporting requirements. And they're increasing the rates by 3.1%. Uh, this update is based on the projected hospital market basket percentage increase of 3.3%, reduced by a 0.2%. Uh, uh, rate for the productivity adjustment. Now, uh, you know, this is marginally uh, up from the proposed rule. You might remember in, J in July we reported that the proposed rule showed 2.8%. Uh, now it went up to 3.1%, a 0.3% increase. And we're grateful for that increase, but it is still wholly inadequate given the cost of energy, the cost of, you know, the rising salaries for all of our staff, supply, supply chain problems. You know, a 4.1% increase in the core consumer costs, uh, you know, is a full 1% mm -hmm. higher than what uh, CMS is giving uh, to the surgery centers. So, and, and hospitals actually get the same rate increase. Uh, so, and, and of course, the, the, one of the problems with that core inflation rate number that we have for the consumer costs is it doesn't include energy, which is bizarre. You know, energy is actually a big part of our cost increase because our organizations, you know, do use uh, electricity and, you know, uh, uh, natural gas, as well as there's built-in costs from the delivery of all the supplies that we get. So it's too bad that those are not being taken into consideration. As we talked about in the interim rate, um, they did make some additions to uh, the uh, approved payment codes. So uh, for 2024, to address patient access issues for dental services under anesthesia in the ASC setting and trying to encourage more dental procedures uh, to move to the uh, ambulatory surgery center, CMS is finalizing the addition of 26 separately payable dental surgical procedures to the ASC covered procedures list, and 78 ancillary dental services to the list of covered ancillary services. We'll provide a link to all the files that, that have the information on these rates. Now, it's interesting, Sue, we really didn't ask to have these things added, mm -hmm. uh, but this was, uh, I mean, it's something that has is important, I think. A lot of these procedures have been done in the surgery center, but it's almost like uh, as, a, uh, as a charity because uh, they're largely Medicaid patients, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, there are some Medicare, you know, patients, obviously, that's why they're adding it to this. Uh, but the uh, CMS is hoping that they'll also flow down into the states, into the Medicaid program. We did have a major win, though, in the industry uh, in that when CMS finalized uh, their rates for 2023. CMS did uh, add a total of 37 surgical procedures, which include the 26 dental procedures. So there were 11 additional codes. Uh, and and a, the ASC Association fought hard to have some additions. This isn't a lot of codes. There's only 11. I'm going to run through mm -hmm. them quickly here. Um, they're, they're, they're not I mean, they're, they're, it's great. Uh, you know, we appreciate them being added. But uh, again, there's so many more things that should be moving into the ASC environment. So I'm going to read the CPT code. Remember, the CPT code is a trademark of the American Medical Association. All rights are reserved. Uh, 21194 is reconstruction of the lower jaw with a graft. 21195, a reconstruction of the jaw without fixation. 23470 is a reconstruction of a shoulder joint, as is 23472. 27006 is the incision of the hip tendons. 27702 is the reconstruction of the ankle joint. 29868 is an arthroscopy knee surgical men uh, meniscal uh, transplantation, including arthrotomy for meniscal insertion, medial or lateral. 
And uh, 33289 is implementation of a hemodynamic monitor. I don't know anything about that one. That's a, that's a new one on me. 37192 is a transcatheter procedure on arteries and veins, other transcatheteral procedures. 60260 is repeat thyroid surgery. And C9734 is a focused ultrasound ablation or therapeutic intervention. As I said, these are not close to what the ASC uh, Association wanted, but it is uh, nonetheless a, a win for, um, you know, for ASCs. Moving on to the finalization of the ASC Quality Reporting Program. In the 2024 uh, final rule, um, they uh, reiterated three items. The first one is COVID-19 vaccination coverage among healthcare personnel. It's measured to align with the updated Centers for Disease Control, the CDC National Healthcare Safety Network measure specifications. And what this really means is that we still have to do the COVID-19 uh, reporting to NHSN at least through 2024. And the cataracts improvement in patients' visual function within 90 days following cataract surgery measure. Uh, they are continuing to uh, uh, push this on the industry. It will not, uh, it'll be voluntary at the current time. Uh, they are uh, looking to have this uh, implemented within the next couple of years. We've been fighting this, uh, you know, pretty uh, uh, voraciously uh, in the industry. Uh, but what they did do is they, uh, they indicate they're going to require the use of one of three specific sur survey instruments to measure the change in visual function pre- and post-operatively to further standardize data collection and reduce facility burden. The problem, I, I it's interesting, so they're... They're adding this to the requirement, and CMS has said, we're going to make it easy for you by providing a tool. But nonetheless, the tool is not something that the nurses in the surgery center are, are really going to be very comfortable using because it has to do with op, you know, uh, optometry. Uh, and, uh, you know, but I guess we're going to have to learn it because we're having a hard time fighting this with CMS. Well, uh, the ASC Association will continue to fight it. It makes no sense that this be put as a burden on the ASCs when it really is uh, something that's going to bounce back to the, uh, you know, the ophthalmology surgeon. Mm -hmm. uh, who is going to be doing this anyway? So, um, yeah. and then good luck trying to find these patients, you know, 90 days after the procedure. That'll, that'll also be challenging, especially in some of our areas. And then item number three, the appropriate follow-up interval for normal colonoscopy and average risk patients measure. Uh, they are aligning that with the updated clinical guidelines there. In addition, CMS is finally finalizing with modification the adoption of, a, of one new ASC uh, quality reporting measure. The risk standardized patient reported outcomes following elective primary total hip and or total knee arthroscopy measure. CMS indicated that this measure will provide specific insight to the quality of care of this common procedure. CMS is finalizing the measure with modification to extend the voluntary reporting period to a total of three years prior to requiring mandatory reporting in the 2028 reporting period for the 2031 payment determination. So this is way off, but I'm actually very supportive of this. I think this is a good way to demonstrate the high quality of care that we can provide uh, for these uh, total knee uh, procedures. You know, I, yes, it's going to be experimental for a while or at least a, a trial for a while. I'd encourage you to look into these things because I think this would be very beneficial to demonstrate to our patients, demonstrate to other doctors, and demonstrate to the uh, to the Medicare program and the insurance companies that, indeed, it, it is safe to move those procedures into the ASC setting.
One other win is CMS is not finalizing the proposal to readopt the hospital and outpatient and ASC facility volume data on selected outpatient surgical procedures. And this is based upon some quite a bit of feedback from the commenter saying that they did not really understand or see how uh, that information would be useful or whether it would have any relevance to providers, consumers, and interested parties. So so at the present time, or at least in 2024, you're not going to have to uh, report that volume data. You know, Sue, so we haven't talked about pharmacy in quite a while, so we decided in our focus segment to talk about the pharmacy regulations and how to comply. And uh, we also uh, found an interview that we did with uh, John Karwalski uh, in April uh, at the New Jersey Association mm-hmm. of ASC's meeting, and I uh, uh, frankly kind of forgot to include this. We'd actually included it in the New Jersey episode, mm-hmm. but we didn't put it in this episode, so it was a good time to pull it out. And in that discussion, we were focusing a little bit more, or more focused on diversion. So let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about pharmaceutical services and the regulations. With the rapid changes occurring in the ASC industry, the exodus of experienced ASC administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers, there is an increasing demand for quality leadership education. That's where our industry-leading boot camps come in. In 2021, we introduced our administrator boot camp and the director of nursing boot camp, and in 2023, the business office manager boot camp. These boot camps have become the industry standard for ASC leadership training, and with over 225 graduates, lead the industry in mentored virtual training. Live virtual training for the administrator boot camp occurs every January and July, and the director of nursing boot camp is October and May. Our new business office manager boot camp will continue in the spring of 2024. There are also on-demand versions of each boot camp for those who simply can't attend the live virtual programs. All boot camps, including the on-demand boot camps, include access to resources, membership in the ASC Central Patron Program, copies of John's latest books, access to credentialing, conditions for coverage, and other recorded training programs, and of course our regular drop-in Zoom sessions where you can ask questions and interact with other patron and boot camp members. Our programs also include AEU credits for those that are CASC certified. Our programs are comprehensive and taught by the nation's leading ASC experts and are designed for all levels of leadership, from experienced leaders who want to enhance their skills or pass the CASC exam, or those who are new to the industry and wish to learn how to run an ASC. For more information about our live, virtual, and on-demand programs, visit ASC Central at asc-central.com, or you can call us at 585-594-1167 or email us at info at ascpodcast.com for more information. So anytime we focus on a particular regulatory area, we always want to go back to the actual conditions for coverage. As we all know, those are the Medicare regulations that govern amateur surgery centers, and and you need to be in compliance with the conditions for coverage in order to maintain your certification as an amateur surgery center for Medicare payment purposes. Uh, Also, most other insurance companies require you to have Medicare certification just to be able to build that insurance company. So when we're talking about pharmaceutical services, we focus on 416.48, Condition for Coverage Pharmaceutical Services. And that states that the ASC must provide drugs and biologicals in a safe and effective manner in accordance with 
accepted professional practice and under the direction of an individual designated responsible for pharmaceutical services. Now, we all know that the conditions for coverage really provide a very high-level de uh, description of what the regulation is. And CMS has provided us with interpreted guidelines, actually provided them to the surveyors. Uh, but fortunately, they're also published so that we know what the surveyors are going to be looking for. So I'm just going to highlight some of the um, interpreted guidelines related to 416.48. And it does state the drugs and biologicals used within the ASC must be provided safely and in an effective manner. And it notes that it has to be consistent with generally accepted professional standards of pharmaceutical practice and with the requirements specified in the standards within this condition. The ASC has to designate a specific licensed healthcare professional to provide direction to the ASC's pharmaceutical service. And that individual must be routinely present when the ASC is open for business, but continuous presence is not required. Now, uh, Sue, this is one of those areas that we, we talk to a lot of our, our clients about, and we've mentioned it mm -hmm. on the podcast, that people have a tendency to kind of point toward their pharmacy consultant uh, for this role. But it is very clear from the interpretive guidelines here that it has to be somebody that is there quite a bit of time. And of course, the pharmacy consultant might only show up quarterly or semi-annually. Uh, generally, this individual, the person that's in charge, is going to be the medical director or the director mm -hmm. of pharmacy services, uh, somebody uh, perhaps that might be, that the li their license might be used yeah. to, to mm -hmm. purchase the, the drugs. And I think sometimes we forget to appoint them on the annual basis. So make sure that in your governing body minutes, you do have an annual appointment of mm -hmm. this individual and make sure that person is very aware of their responsibilities and that they indeed do have that role. The interpretive guidelines also note that ideally the ASC should have available a pharmacist who provides oversight and consultation on the ASC's pharmaceutical service, but that is not actually required by the federal regulation. It might be required by the state regulations. Now, the regulations go on to state that ideally the ASC should have available a pharmacist who provides oversight or consultation on the ASC's pharmaceutical service, but that is not required by the regulation. However, the state regulators may require that as part of their uh, regulations related to the, uh, the organization's state license. So I will add to this, too, that, that pharmacy, uh, the pharmacist's reports are extremely valuable. Even if you are in mm -hmm. a state that does not require it, we highly recommend that you have available a pharmacist. Even if they don't come in on a regular basis, I do recommend they do, but if, you know, if they don't come in on a regular basis, just having somebody that you can call up when you have a pharmacy-related problem, such as a diversion, uh, questions about uh, alternative drugs. That's become quite common recently when when drugs, certain drugs are in short supply. The pharmacist might be able to provide you some alternatives. Also, any time that there is a drug interaction or a, a drug problem, uh, the pharmacist should be consulted. <clears throat> so be prepared when the surveyors show up to, uh, to do the following. They're going to ask the ASC's leadership for evidence that a qualified individual has been designated to direct the pharmaceutical services in the ASC. They may wish to talk to that person, so make sure they're prepped as to the types of questions they might have, which are really related to the way in which the pharmaceutical service is overseen, mm -hmm. and, and also making sure that the person in charge is well aware of all the documentation requirements, checks on those documents periodically. Mm -hmm. And Sue, so I think that is one problem is it does note in the regulations that um, that the, the person in charge of pharmaceutical services uh, really should know what's going on there and should be aware of those yeah. records and look at them because if something happens, it is going to be that person who is going to be held responsible for it. And continuing with 41648, 
administration of drugs. Drugs must, must be prepared and administered according to established policies and acceptable standards of practice. And there are interpretive guidelines for this 41648A. Drugs and biologicals used within the ASC must be administered to patients in accordance with formal policies the ASC has adopted, and those policies and the ASC's actual practices must conform to acceptable standards of practice for medication administration. Uh, so you should have some very comprehensive policies and procedures. Make sure that they are reviewed by somebody that is uh, familiar with medication management. That would generally be a pharmacy consultant. Now, the interpretive guidelines go on to define accepted professional practice and acceptable standards of practice. And this is very important because when you're looking for, uh, when you're looking to develop the policies and procedures, you want to make sure you're using the correct organizations. And also these organizations do provide signs and other guidance on a regular basis. So they have defined uh, the accepted professional practice and acceptable standards of practice to mean that drugs and biologicals are handled and provided in the ASC in accordance with applicable state and federal laws, as well as standards established by organizations with nationally recognized expertise in the clinical use of drugs and biologicals. And they pointed out a couple examples, which include the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy, the Institute of Safe Medication Practices, or ISMP, and the American Society of Health System Pharmacists. And they point out the ASC must have policies and procedures designed to promote medication administration consistent with acceptable standards of practice. So they should address issues including but not limited to. So the first one is a physician or other qualified member of the medical staff acting within their scope of practice must issue an order for all drugs or biologicals administered in the ASC. And this is one thing that I've actually noted, and, and uh, Lori Rodericks, uh, my colleague also on, on the AHS team, has noted that we're finding orders to be a bit of a problem, both the standing orders and the orders issued during um, the procedures, um, both making sure that they're there, that they're signed off by the doctor, and most particularly we've noticed that they're not always countersigned by the nurses when the orders have been carried out. So look for that. Also, keep in mind that you need to uh, make sure that verbal orders are followed up in writing. And again, that's mm -hmm. one of those problems that we periodically find. And you must follow the manufacturer's label, including the storing of drugs and biologicals, as directed, disposing of expired medications in a timely manner, using single-dose vials of medication for one patient only. And again, this is one of those areas that has been somewhat problematic. Again, mm -hmm. we're always repeating the importance of reading the manufacturer's labels, uh, you know, double-checking before you're using any of these drugs, storing them in such a way that they're uh, uh, easily identified, uh, storing them in a safe manner, and uh, if there is a temperature or, you know, that's required, it has to be refrigerated, making sure you're following that very closely. Disposing of expired medications has been a problem also. There are a lot of different ways of doing that. Make sure you follow the manufacturer's recommendations. And then using a single-dose vials of medication for one ASC only. Uh, that has There's been an uptick in that. I think I've particularly seen it with regard to propofol. The uh, anesthesiologists in many cases have been saying, well, why are we, why are we only using it on one patient? I can safely use it on, on multiple patients given how quickly these cases go. But it doesn't matter. The instructions say that it can only be you know, one use and violating that would re result in a in a uh, immediate jeopardy situation if a surveyor to come in, uh, and also would be a malpractice problem if indeed um, you had a uh, a lawsuit related to that. So be very careful about those things, and you also want to avoid preparation of the medications too far in advance of their use. For example, while it may appear efficient to pre-draw 
the evening before all medications that will be used for the surgeries that has been scheduled the following day, this practice may, depending on the particular drug or biological, promote the loss of integrity, stability, and security of the medication, as well as, you know, infection control issues. And any pre-filled syringes must be initialed by the person who draws it, dated and timed to indicate when they were drawn, and labeled as both content and expiration date. And again, Sue, that is a very common problem I find mm -hmm. when I am doing um, surveys and uh, Lori uh, Rodericks, our infection control expert, she's always talking about uh, how we, we need to make sure we're following standard infection control practices uh, whenever you're using injectable medications, including proper hand hygiene and, you know, scrubbing the septum, et cetera. The interpretive guidelines for 41648A continue to talk about the records, uh, noting that records of receipt and disposition of all drugs listed in all the schedules uh, have to be maintained. If the ASC uses any of these scheduled drugs, the ASC's policies and procedures have to address the following. The accountability procedures to ensure control of the distribution, use, and disposition of the scheduled drugs. Records of the receipt and disposition of all scheduled drugs must be current and must be accurate. And records to trace the movement of scheduled drugs throughout the ASC have to be maintained. And continuing, the ASC system is capable of readily identifying loss or diversion of all controlled substances in such a manner as to minimize the time frame between the actual loss or diversion to the time of detection and determination of the extent of loss or diversion. So we've seen an uptick in the, the amount of diversion recently. I think it's kind of a sign of the times. Uh, it seems to be a problem that has been escalating, not just after the pandemic, but it was starting before the pandemic. And I think ASCs are, are likely uh, locations for this because often the security in an ASC is not as secure as in a hospital, mm -hmm. which might be using things like the Pixis units. So we have to remain very vigilant about this, make sure that those drugs are properly stored, that records are maintained, and that any time the count comes off up wrong, uh, that uh, some follow-up is immediately enacted. Uh, if that means people have to stay late in order to be able to reconcile what's going on uh, with those numbers, that certainly is something that needs to be done. And make sure you're your staff, the providers and the nurses um, take seriously the signing off of, you know, as um, medications are wasted when they have that double count that they need to really take that seriously and be responsible for what they write in there. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I think one of the things that we've seen also is that, you know, that you develop such a level of trust with your mm -hmm. colleagues. Uh, and certainly the doctors just don't want to sit there and sign if they're yeah. if they're going to have to be that second, second signature. They will probably just automatically, just by rote, just sign it off without actually watching. And that really is a very dangerous procedure. And keep in mind that it's your license that's on the line when you're signing off on that. And you don't want to take those chances. Let's just briefly mention what the surveyor is going to be looking for when they're assessing your compliance with 41648A. They're going to try to determine if there's any evidence in the medical records review that there was an order signed by a physician or other qualified practitioner for all the drugs and biologicals administered to the patient. They also want to make sure the drugs or biologicals are administered only by nurses or other qualified in individuals or under the direction of nurses or other qualified individuals as permitted by federal and state law. So be very careful about who you allow to administer those drugs. And then they're also going to be checking for the labeling, make sure that they're properly labeled, that they're properly stored, and haven't expired. And expirations, it still amazes me that this is one of those things that I almost always find when I go on, find when I, that I always seem to find when I go on site. So uh, check regularly to make sure that any expired drugs are pulled. 
as part of the infection control survey tool that CMS uses, you also want to make sure that the ASC employs safe injection practices. And if the ASC uses scheduled drugs, their surveyors are going to be looking to determine if there's a record system in place that provides information on controlled substances in a readily retrievable manner. And they're going to review the records to determine that they trace the movement of the scheduled drugs from when the drugs enter the facility to when they're finally disposed of or used. And they'll want to determine if the licensed healthcare professional who is in charge of the ASC's pharmaceutical services is responsible for determining that all drug records are in order and that an account of all scheduled drugs is maintained and periodically reconciled. And that is a problem because often mm-hmm. those individuals that have been appointed in that position don't realize the responsibilities they're taking on. So make sure that whoever it is, and it's usually going to be a doctor, you know, has an opportunity to review the records regularly. And again, the uh, surveyors are going to check to make sure that any losses are immediately identified and that there is a very quick process for identifying the cause of that loss or where those drugs ended up. And they're going to review your policies and procedures to make sure that that the organization minimizes scheduled drug diversion. 416.48a continues on uh, to note that adverse reactions must be reported to the physician responsible for the patient and must be documented in the record. And the interpretive guidelines just note that any adverse reaction or drug to a drug or biological is immediately reported to the physician so they can take whatever actions they need in order to assure the patient uh, recovers quickly. And all adverse drug reactions experienced uh, by patients must be documented in the patient's medical record. And, of course, there has to be policies and procedures that incorporate all of these requirements. And then the surveyors, of course, will be interviewing clinical staff to determine uh, the steps that they would take with regard to an adverse reaction, or they'll be reviewing medical records that might have an example of that. Continuing on, 416.48a, Section 3 says orders given orally for drugs and biologicals must be followed by a written order and signed by the prescribing physician. And we did note this earlier. But again, you want to make sure that there is the the regular uh, process involved, which includes a readback and verification process whereby the nurse receiving the order repeats it back to the prescribing physician who then verifies that it's correct. And that, of course, follows up with a written order. And then they have to, the prescribing physician must sign, date, and time the written order in the patient's medical record confirming that verbal order. This is particularly a problem in ASCs because if you don't get that surgeon to do it right away, mm. you might not be able to get them, you know, for quite a while afterwards. Mm-hmm. So, again, make sure all of these are, are occurring. And the survey procedures for this is the surveyors, uh, if they observe any verbal orders occurring while they're uh, watching a case, they'll keep an eye out for this being followed up in writing. And then, of course, they'll interview your nursing staff to ask them how they would handle uh, verbal orders if they don't see them in the, uh, in, in the time that they're on site. They want to make sure that the practice conforms to the regulatory requirements. So infection control is one of those issues, Sue, that we find during surveys and even you know, with mm-hmm. our own clients as we're getting, getting them ready for a survey. Simple things like scrubbing the hub, scrubbing the septum on the vial. The, the vial. And it was interesting. Uh, one of the doctors uh, that we had been working with said, I had never heard of this. I just always assumed that, you know, when I clip, flip the uh-huh. top off, mm-hmm. <clears throat> that it was sterile. And, uh, and, and he, he had no problem. Uh, accepting that they needed to be done once he thought about it. But mm-hmm. uh, sometimes we just have to go back to basics and make sure that yeah. people, you know, who, who have been doing these things for years understand some of the more basic requirements there. And, of course, hand hygiene when drawing up and administering drugs is vital. Never forget USP 797, which allows for the mixing of up to three drugs. Anything beyond that would, would have to be done by a compounding pharmacy. 
So another ongoing problem we have is the proper administration of multi-dose drugs. And the regulations require you to draw it up outside of the patient care area. And when we define a patient care area, that means anywhere a patient could be, uh, which means that you can't avoid uh, this issue. In other words, you can't draw up a multi-dose drug while the patient is not in an operating room. You're still, it's still considered a patient care area even when the patient isn't there, uh, and that could result in cross-contamination. So um, just be very careful. Identify an area in your surgery center uh, that would be used for any uh, time that you draw up. And if you do have to use a multi-dose vial in a patient care area, for example, in the operating room, it immediately becomes a single dose. And make sure your policies and procedures follow that. And, of course, it goes without saying that you must follow manufacturer's instructions regarding whether a product is single or multi-dose. And really for all other matters, always That's instructions right. <laughs> for use. It's, I have use for everything. Sue, I've mm-hmm. been starting to save all the instructions for use in the house now, too. So, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, we don't have an instruction for use for our dog here who is sleeping contently uh-huh. between us. <laughs> so, drug diversion has become a major issue in healthcare. Often it is our own staff. Uh, so we need to keep an eye out, dispose of drugs properly, and have all wasting and have all wasting witnessed, and report any diversion immediately to the proper authorities. As I mentioned earlier during the April New Jersey State Association meeting, I had a chance to uh, interview John Karwalski, and and while we included this in the New Jersey special episode, we did not include it in the uh, an episode about pharmacy. So that this is our opportunity to bring it out now. So uh, let's listen now to John Karwalski talking about drug diversion. So this is John Gailey, and I'm here at the uh, New Jersey Annual Conference in April 2023, and I'm here with my friend John Karwalski. Um, and John, talk a little bit about your company first. Well, it's great to be back with you, John. Um, we talked, I guess, a few years ago at the New York meeting, and uh, you know, I like really uh, working with you and your team. Just like you, I'm working in throughout the country with consultant pharmacist services. Um, just celebrated my 20th anniversary starting yeah. JDJ Consulting, and we have a team of great pharmacists. Um, I'm speaking today at the conference on our recent benchmarking uh, that we've completed on narcotic diversion, and I thought we could just chat a little bit about what we've seen over the years and, uh, you know, answer some questions you, that you may see out in the field. It's funny with narcotic diversion, you and I talk a lot about the risks in our centers and how we can uh, better improve things and educate people, and the benchmarking pointed out a lot of areas that we see uh, need and maybe some that are getting better, but some always can be better. Um, just this morning, got a call from a facility of mine that is worried about a potential diversion. So it's always uh, present. We are uh, trying our best to help with uh, preventing it and uh, educating people to know when, in fact, it might be existing in our centers. Yeah, and you have a number of our clients, too. You cover, what states do you cover? Pretty much 13 states right now. Okay. Our mid, mid-Atlantic states are our home base, uh, New Jersey, uh, Pennsylvania, New Jer- uh, Delaware, Maryland. We go as far as California, Mississippi, uh, South Carolina, Nevada. And uh, I think people really respect our, our uh, services and our reports that we generate for you know moving them forward in, in best practices. That's right. And uh, so when I speak of diversions, it actually hasn't been any of our mutual clients. But <laughs> but we've, uh, we've had, and that's... Uh, to be honest with you, that's probably, it's not a matter of if, it's almost a matter of when, uh, unfortunately. I mean, it, you can set good systems up, and uh, but even some of our best places, unfortunately, have had that. So talk about, because I mean, that's the point to be made is that, um, I mean, my experience, it's, it's the least, it's the person that you least expected to do a diversion. You and I did talk about how someone could 
show no signs yeah. and no exhibit no red flags. It's very difficult uh, unless you're doing consistent audits and oversight of this area of, of the centers. Uh, I sometimes think it's too complacent with staff because they've all worked together, they're comfortable with one another, mm -hmm. and therefore the guard is let down. The diversion call this morning was actually what I see happen a lot. The OR anesthesia cart was left unattended between cases. The nurse CRNA returned back for her next procedure, and a vial count was incorrect. Yeah. And when you question the CRNA, the box wasn't locked, yeah. and, the, and the cart wasn't locked, and no one was attending the room. Uh, and we, we see this quite frequently, as I know you, you see it in your investigations. Well, it, during the survey, is probably one of the most common things we have. And a comment will be made, well, somebody's always in the room. Well, that, whoever is taking responsibility for those drugs, that's the person that should be you know, locking it up or, or, or making sure it's being secured. Um, so let's, again, repeat, the uh, anesthesia cart should always be locked whenever uh, the anesthesiologist is not in the room. Probably the best tool for that tends to be those, uh, the ones with the push buttons now, I think. Push-button push combo, yeah. uh, auto-locking cart. Really, right. the technology is there. I actually have a few places that have a badge swipe entry into the cart. Yeah. You know, I think uh, we're at a point in the ASC industry where automation needs to really start to show its head. Uh, we don't need Pixis and OmniCell, but we need real-time devices that can manage controlled substances and track uh, usage of controlled substances. As you know, when you go into these ASCs, very few have automation with narcotic control records. It's a paper mm -hmm. system. Yeah. When is the last time a health, health system or a hospital dealt with narcotic papers? Right. It's, it's, I mean, in, in 20 years, we haven't seen it in hospitals in 20 years, but in surgery centers, it is paper, and we need to mm -hmm. take the jump to automation to help us secure. And you know what? It, it, the reports that you can get from these machines can generate red flags and, and areas where you need to investigate. Uh, I think that's my mission lately is, is, to, is to educate people on the benefits of that sy systems that are out there. What do you think is the most common drugs that are being diverted right now? Uh, injectable narcotics. Yeah. Um, Dilaudid. Fentanyl, uh, C2 narcotics are, are mm -hmm. very uh, physically addictive, and therefore someone that is is occasionally begins to use drugs uh, finds that they need more and more to right. satisfy that that uh, physical addiction, and a lot of times they catch themselves by failure to steal drugs, uh, mm -hmm. putting saline back in a vial. Yeah. Uh, we just saw in one of our uh, emails from Becker's uh, that a nurse was found guilty of transferring fentanyl out of a vial, putting saline in the vial, and thousands of doses were discovered at a center in, in Florida. Um, I found that in my center occurring a few years ago. So I think the injectable narcotics, although Drugs like Percocet and Vicodin are being repackaged and, and, and other drugs being put in. Um, the blatant stealing of, of, a, of 10 vials is not something because it, it'll just show up on account. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, there's also very sophisticated purchasing uh, methods that people have found to be diverting a, a large quantities of drugs. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the workplace, it's usually an injectable vial. And what, that brings up an interesting question. As part of our quality improvement program, 
as we're looking at incidents, as we're looking at people that are complaining about pain, what types of things should we be watching for as a potential sign that a drug has been uh, diverted in such a way that they're, you don't readily uh, recognize, like you said, you know, in, in inserting uh, saline to replace the, what was taken the out. The red flags, uh, we do a lot of education for our nursing staff and our surgery centers, and our benchmarking this year demonstrated that we more centers are requesting that education. And I think yeah. it is a key to allowing the staff to know what a red flag, you know, from an individual to a facility uh management of, of narcotics. What if patients in the recovery room who were given pain medicine are, are screaming in pain? Mm -hmm. That was discovered by a physician one time who was ordering uh, a narcotic for pain and recovery. His patients, the nurse said, administ were administered. The patient never got the drug. Yeah. We discovered that saline was administered and the nurse was injecting herself with, with the narcotic. So red flags, there's multiple red mm -hmm. flags. Uh, we want to empower our nursing staff and our clinical staff to report anything that is not right in their eyes. Because mm -hmm. the bottom line we have to remember, John, is our patients are coming in for a procedure, wanting to be not have complications, want to have a surgical procedure and go home and recover. How would you feel if they were harmed by bloodborne pathogen by a contaminated meal that, that maybe an employee was using on themselves. So we really take it personally with JDJ as, as getting this education out and empowering our nurses to report to their supervisors or even to me as their consultant mm -hmm. pharmacist any worries they have. I don't want a nurse going home at night worrying okay. about what might be happening in their place. And, and that's where we can really help out. Yeah, you're getting to the heart of one of my ongoing concerns is that there's so many organizations that discourage incident reports being written up or the flips. And, and there, there needs to be a recognition, almost a reward for reporting things so that we can look into it. Even if in the end, it, you know, let's say that you're reporting a patient or a, pa a patient complaining about pain that was unresolved. Uh, even if in the end you determine that this is a patient that, you know, was given valid drugs, uh, that's fine. But by reporting that and then over time seeing multiple cases. You'll see the trends. That you'll see the trends. The but trends, how are we going to have yeah, those trends if, yeah, we, don't, if yeah. we don't report every incident? Um, it is important to document, to report, because they can really show trends that on an individual basis, you might not see anything. Right, right. But when you see the multiples, as you're saying, and now you're, you're tracking things by a provider, by a particular nurse, mm -hmm. and this is what automation can do for us. The manager could run a report that shows usage by provider of, of drugs. Mm -hmm. And we had a place up in North Jersey that was using automation. And they called me and said, hey, our four nurses in PACU pretty much administer the same amount of pain medicine. One nurse is way up over the, over the mm -hmm. standard norm. And we didn't see that unless we mm -hmm. had that, that data collection. Yeah. Whether it's incident reports, whether it's uh, uh, automation that can generate reports, Hospitals around the country do this, and the pharmacy departments track these types of things. Right. And our ASC industry can really benefit and, and keep our patients safe with this um, ability to, to look at trends. 
So it gets, again, it gets to the heart of quality improvement of following up on incident reports and not just brushing them off. Uh, and then what you're also talking about is that internal benchmarking where you're comparing, um, you know, the pain, uh, unresolved pain uh, over a period of time, quarter to quarter, month to month, you know, uh, what, whatever time frame you choose. And then making sure that you do look into any trends that are going in the opposite direction from what you expect creating an action plan, doing a quality improvement study if you're AAAC or, you know, a, a performance improvement project if you're a joint commissioner or one of the others. Those are what surveyors expect you to see uh, or to do. Absolutely. I think uh, when you think about benchmarking, it's a really a continuous loop in in performance improvement. You know, I have a definition that I'm going to be presenting this afternoon, uh, benchmarking a process of learning, adapting, and measuring best practices of an organization to improve performance. It goes and cycles on and on. Our benchmarking recently this past fall was on narcotic diversion. We asked uh, facilities around the country to answer 60 questions <laughs> on six areas of, of narcotic uh, control, security, surveillance, documentation, education, resources, and um, we think this type of benchmarking, we've done it three years in a row, this will continue to allow centers to see what other, other centers are doing mm -hmm. and maybe uh, enhance their own systems. Uh, I know the nurse this morning called with that discrepancy or that potential diversion. She was visic uh, visibly on the phone very upset. Yeah, she yeah. felt like she didn't do her job. Yeah. And that's a shame to put a nursing manager in that position. And the other thing we do, John, is, is our data uh, showed that we're improving on having policies for managers when there is diversion. Right. You want to have a nurse when someone comes to them with a question about maybe somebody diverting to be able to have a step-by-step a -step guideline so that they accurately can begin to track and investigate. You can't leave it to inconsistency when a nurse has to track a potential diversion because people can uh, file lawsuits for false act, you know, mm -hmm. claims of, of what you're doing. Uh, we got to be careful. We're going to move towards testing, drug testing, and that's got to go into legal. So we really work hard for our centers to have a policy dealing with their steps they need to take when diversion is identified. So let's talk about what would be a good way to – uh, to monitor this on an ongoing basis. Seems to me like uh, a nurse and, and rotating. It shouldn't be the same nurse yeah, all the time, yeah. but you have a, uh, you know, some type of a checklist, for example, that somebody is rounding. And this has to be, I, I gotta say, this has got to be a weekly type thing, you know, uh, or even daily if you end up with yeah. a situation where you're really concerned uh, and rounding. So I'm just thinking out loud what sure, types of things sure. we'll be looking for yep. as part of that rounding. And uh, I use a slide. Uh, at our center and looking at a controlled substance from cradle to grave. Mm -hmm. And the stop points along that from when its order is placed mm -hmm. to when it's sent to the wholesaler to when it's delivered to the center mm -hmm. to when it's unpacked to when it's entered into inventory to when it's signed out to an anesthesia provider or administered to a patient to when it's administered to when it's wasted if there's waste. That continuum needs continuous auditing. Now, as you said, things might be weekly. Things might be daily. Right. When you think about witnessing for waste after yeah. a medicine is administered in the OR by anesthesia, what we want our nurses to do when they reconcile that sheet at the end of the day when it re gets returned, the anesthesia provider just can't throw it into a box and run out the door. Mm -hmm. A nurse must 
reconcile. They're looking at a few items, and this is the daily audit. Does the count match what was administered and what right. was returned? If there's waste, was a witness present to sign? Mm-hmm. Is there any illegibility or numbers of writing over? That's a daily thing that follows that continuum. Maybe weekly is a nurse is auditing charts, the intra-op record versus maybe the count sheet. Did that match? And we find discrepancies there. Maybe monthly, the nursing administrator will run reports of utilization of drugs. So you see the continuum and the audits points can vary on a time frame, but we don't want to miss any of this. And our benchmarking did show that we're at, and, and when you come to see the talk this afternoon, from 19, 2019 to 2022, all the audits in these areas have all increased by our centers. And that makes me really proud that they understand the urgency just as we understand mm-hmm. the urgency. You and I know that we want to have our centers be doing the best in this arena, and this auditing is is part of that. And it gives them uh, peace of mind when they know mm-hmm. that you know that's going on. The other thing it does is it lets the facility staff know and the providers know that audits are taking place. Right. When you physically go out and monitor and, and they see you monitoring mm-hmm. and they call you. And yeah, they don't see, make this a secret chopper thing. It, it should yeah, be obvious. Yeah, yeah. Good point. And, and when you find a discrepancy, immediately interact with the individual who had the discrepancy. That puts them on notice. Good places have good employees. Mm-hmm. Bad places have bad employees. And it's a big part of our jobs, you and I, to enhance that message when we go and visit our facilities. So before we started recording, we were talking about uh, uh, incidents where uh, physicians who might be that second signer on the uh, the drug counts will just at the beginning of the day, just, uh, you know, I mean, you can't make this stuff up, right? Yep. Uh, uh, you know, just sign off as though he had been there and witnessed the, the counts and how important it is to make sure that that sort of thing is not occurring, that you are yeah. uh, seriously taking that those those uh, taking those counts seriously. And then the people that are signing off on it are, are indeed doing what they're saying they're doing. You know, we did a little data study that showed uh, when the count, when the waste is actually witnessed. Mm -hmm. And we see improvements from 2019 to 2022. Um, We asked, is it done at the end of the procedure or is it done at the end of the day? We don't want to see syringes with partial drugs left till the end of the day. That went down from 9.2 to 2% in centers that leave it till the end of the day. I yeah. want that to be zero. Right, right. What we did see improve from 45% to 75% is wastage is occurring at the end of the procedure. So when the doctor shows the nurse in the room, hey, I got one ml of fentanyl and it's in the RX destroyer, wasted, and the empty syringe is in the sharps, that nurse is the one that's going to sign it at that moment or in that time frame. Right, right. The other thing automation would do is we could track when the, when the waste was actually signed. And one of my centers found that one CRNA had a four-hour delay on mm. when they were getting their co-signature for wasting on their automated device. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, And the technology gave that center that information. Yeah, right. And, and now we have a situation where syringes were maybe left unattended. Yeah, right. Now a nurse is signing for something that was a syringe, maybe it was four hours. How do we know? Nurses get worried about their signing their name. How, are they responsible to say it is fentanyl in there or diluted? Yeah. It's basically saying that you saw one ml of a substance wasted. Right. So you see, you and I, what we see together, right? Yeah. Very common. Well, I had another one of my pet peeves, I, I, and it happens 
I swear it must be like one out of every four centers that I go into. You go and look at the big waste bin in the operating room, and there is a syringe half filled with, with usually it's propofol, propofol, but there'll be other things. Yeah. And, yeah. and I guess that's another one of my concerns is I know propofol is not a controlled substance. It can be harmful. And it can be very harmful. And that's the one where I'm finding centers, are because it's not a controlled substance, they don't treat it yeah. as dangerously as a dangerous substance. And I see it left open, yeah. you know, on the yeah. counter. I see the yeah. syringes with it half filled. Very lax in yeah. handling that medication because it's not deemed by the DEA as a controlled substance, but it is abusable right. by, uh, by people, and people have been harmed by that. Uh, I did a newsletter. I was so frustrated with um, non-compliance of the wasting of drugs and the sharps because I see it in four out of five centers yeah, yeah. that I, mo- I did a newsletter last month, and it was called Squirt It Out Before You Throw It Out. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> and I've had managers post it around their centers. Yeah. That little, I'll send it over to you. I was going to say, that Squirt sounds like a good sign. Post, I'll yeah, tell right. you what, send it over to me and yeah. we'll link it in our uh, our show notes yeah, here. It, so it they really can was a big hit. It. it was a big hit because yeah. everybody knows it's not what to do right. and we still see it happening. So John, let's talk about uh, security and ongoing surveillance activities. And again, uh, John, our benchmarking has demonstrated an enhanced level of surveillance at ASCs that we cover uh, in 2019, for instance, even facility entrance front door mm-hmm. surveillance went from 35 to 50%. We'd like to see surveillance being used more in the med room. Are you uh, talking about like video surveillance? Video surveillance, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're talking video surveillance, particularly with this question for our centers. When we open new centers now, we, we recommend in the med room surveillance at the mm-hmm. narcotic I cabinet. Yeah. We recommend in a med room a access panel that's badge swiped, not mm-hmm. just a push button. We also recommend that med room door has an auto close lever so it doesn't remain open. Right. Uh, but surveillance has improved in our centers and I think that gives centers, we call it a diverter, a nursing supervisor, placing uh, Delauded in her pocket yeah. and, and, and later bringing it back with something else in there. And it was found on video surveillance because we had surveillance at the cabinet. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think, I think it protects centers and, and the technology is not that cheap. Right. It's right. Not, not that, that expensive, expensive right now. Right. And uh, that's an area that I, I have felt is, um, is a key component to minimizing uh, the diversion re- risks. And again, physical uh, security, making sure you've got uh, good badge systems, that you're updating those badges on a regular basis. When somebody leaves, make sure you take them out of the system. Uh, I agree. Uh, you know, as much as possible, be moving away from the old keys. First of all, how many times have the, the keys actually get put on a hook and yeah, anybody can access it? Or left uh, in the cabinet door. Uh, yeah, right. You got pictures yeah. of that too, right? Yeah. Yeah. The badge systems are not, the prices are dropping. They're yeah. becoming much. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, think about what could happen if you had a, uh, an actual diversion. Yeah. Traceability of entry by the badge is a great tool for managers mm-hmm. to identify. When we have a diversion call, we want to narrow the window down of when we were knowledgeable of it not being a problem to when the count was wrong. Right now, the center this morning has a two-hour window that they have to follow. It's mm-hmm. not like a two-day or a one-day, 24-hour access. So minimizing that time frame of a potential diversion, and if you had surveillance, watching a tape of that mm-hmm. time frame that you knew it might have happened, gives a, a tools that we never had before. 
Right. Well, and you bring up a, 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 another important point here is that what do you do as soon as you uh, identify a possible diversion or you know a diversion has occurred? So one thing is obviously contact your uh, your uh, your pharmacy consultant if you're working like with a firm like ours with regular consulting who's going to be uh, right. I'm sorry, regulatory uh, compliance oversight. You're going to want to consult with them to make sure the investigation, the incident report's done. What else? What should be a component of that? Yeah. And, and again, um, pull out their policy. Yeah. Because we want to make sure that they stepwise do everything accurately right. when diversion is suspected. Uh, document, 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 whatever anybody said to you, whatever, mm-hmm. whoever you interviewed, timestamp it. So historical information is important. This morning's call was to me, uh, and that was wonderful. We can't delay in calling the pharmacist because right. we can help moving you in a direction that won't cause more maybe diversion. Uh, it could be as little as, you know, lock the place down until we get mm-hmm. everybody's name and number or, uh, you know, sequester what is whatever we're talking about. Maybe we need to send a syringe for testing. But, um, yeah, follow your policy. If you don't have a policy, call us at JDJ Consulting. We can help with policy mm-hmm. development. We really think it's the tool that managers need to protect them and their patients in the surgery center. And from a surveyor standpoint, pharmacy is becoming a big issue now. I mean, we're doing a lot of citations. And keep in mind uh, that these could be immediate jeopardy. As a matter of fact, diversion that is witnessed or is observed during a, or, or an unresolved uh, discrepancy could be something that would escalate immediately to an immediate jeopardy situation, in which case you'll have to shut down until you're able to resolve that. Um, and likewise, as you said, if you observe one uh, or suspect one, you immediately take actions, interview people individually, not together as a group, so that you can get their different stories. And with a, with a, with a witness, because mm-hmm. uh, that can lead to inconsistent right. comments. It's always three sides to the story, as we know. Yeah. yeah. And again, like we, I, I, I cannot emphasize enough, you and I are, are good friends. It is extremely important even if your state doesn't require you to have a pharmacy consultant. And I'm not just trying to sell your services. I mean, there are so many services that a, a pharmacy consultant yeah. can give you uh, to, to help resolve so many of those uh, problems that you'll run into. We're seeing uh, some increases in uh, requirements by certain states. Yeah. And I'm not sure if you realize in South Carolina, physician practices require a quarterly pharmacy consultant visit. How about that? Yeah. A physician practice, because they're not regulated. Yeah. They have samples. They've been caught uh, fill, you know, writing prescriptions for you know, pill mills. Yeah. And South Carolina mandates that a application with a pharmacist's name on it, licensed in the state, performs quarterly visits. And we just yeah. started with 70 facilities in South Carolina offices. Yeah. And yeah. our pharmacists go in. It's a short visit, but mm-hmm. we're auditing charts. Yeah. We're auditing samples. The thing, you know, the thing we see, John, is nurses want to learn. They just need the guidance. Yeah. And we're already creating educational programs for mm-hmm. nurses. Somebody was wanting to give IM Rosefin for uh, in a s- office practice, and they really were inconsistent on reconstituting the drug, even. So we scripted that information for them. Uh, sample uh, track. So I would like to see more states uh, adopt these. You know, oversights and who better than a pharmacist or someone like yourself with a company that you've worked with for years to, right. to help staff perform the best they can. Right. As always, John, it's great talking to you again and uh, we'll have you back again, I'm sure, at uh, another uh, uh, next opportunity. Great. But I appreciate your time. Thanks so much, John. And great to see you and good luck with everything. And I uh, hope you uh, continue to enjoy the uh, program today. Thanks.
And in this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff and other events in the ASC industry. We are uh, kind of way behind in getting episodes out right now. We have a bunch mm-hmm. of them scheduled, and uh, we fell a little bit behind this week with the boot camp. But uh, stay tuned. We're going to be ramping up a little bit and, uh, and trying to get a lot of information out to you in a short period of time. So, uh, Sue, I'm heading out to the Washington Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual education conference and trade show, which is going to be November 9th and 10th. Uh, 2023 at the Tulalip Resort and Spa in Tulalip, Washington. And I'll be speaking there about benchmarking. And if I have an opportunity, I'll uh, do a special episode up there. We tried last year and we weren't able to quite do it, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll make another attempt this year. And our introduction to finance and accounting for ambulatory surgery centers is November 16th, um, live, virtual, and it will be on demand after that date. And on the following day, the ASC Conditions for Coverage and Interpret Guidelines Conference will be November 17th, and it's also going to be live and on demand after that date. And ASCA 2024 will be at the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center in Orlando, Florida, April 17th through the 20th, 2024. The Georgia Society of ASCs and the South Carolina ASC Association's Joint Semiannual Conference and Trade Show will be February 22nd and 23rd, 2024 in Atlanta, Georgia at the Westin Atlanta Perimeter North. And they're going to have another conference on August 15th and 16th at Hilton Head, South Carolina at the Marriott Hilton Head Resort and Spa. And the Gulf States Conference will be June 11th through the 13th, 2024 in Biloxi, Mississippi at the Beau Rivage Resort and Casino. Uh, And the Florida Society of Ambulatory Surgery Center's Quality and Risk Management Conference will be April 4th through the 5th, 2024 in Daytona Beach, Florida at the Hilton Oceanfront Resort. And the annual uh, conference and trade show will be July 17th through the 19th in Orlando, Florida at the Signia by Hilton Orlando Bonnet Creek. And the Tennessee Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's Conference is September 12th through 13th, 2024 in Chattanooga, Tennessee at the Chattanooga. Don't forget our upcoming boot camps. January 2024 cohort of the ASC Administrators Boot Camp is January 23rd to 26th, and you can sign up for that at asc-central.com. And we will be having uh, another DON boot camp sometime in May, and the business officer Business Office Managers Boot Camp sometime probably in March. We'll be announcing those very shortly. And all this uh, and information on all of these boot camps is available at asc-central.com. Remember, on-demand versions of the ASC Director of Nursing, ASC Administrators, and Business Office Managers Boot Camp are available on ASC Central at asc-central.com. And don't forget, we have a lot of Pre-recorded events all available on ASC-Central.com, including the credentialing conference recorded in 2020, medical director conference recorded in 2021. Uh, and also uh, in, 20, in June of 2023, we did a, a multi-state conference, which is eligible for 16 AEUs and four IPCH credits. So if you're looking for some relatively inexpensive AEU or IPCH credits, uh, you can uh, get them at the website at ASC-Central. At, that's ASC-Central.com. And we do want to remind everyone to become a patron member of the podcast. The patron member program, which is known as the ASC Central Patron Program, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop 
ASC Regulatory and Accreditation Compliance Operations and Financial Management Resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. And resources include some of our virtual conferences, links, policies and procedures, forms, and fire and disaster drills. Membership helps to defray the costs of producing this podcast, including the research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. And for more information, you can visit asc-central.com. That's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Galen. If you found the episode informative, please share it with your friends and colleagues in the ASC industry. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And we would love any feedback that you can give us by emailing us at comments at ASCpodcast.com. And we'd like to give a special thank you to our great team here at the podcast who make this podcast possible. Our sound editor, Susan Cronkite, our executive producer, John Gailey, and our dedicated research team of Sue Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calaritis, Jim Masters, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, Kathy Foti, Donna Macchio, and Christina Norman. We truly couldn't do it without them. Our music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, Trivalence, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Surgical Information Systems provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable insights. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCpodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCpodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCpodcast.com.